The following message is entitled, The Eternal Word, Part 8. This message was given during the morning service on December 4, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. The sake of the recording, as I've already shared with the auditorium, folks here at church this morning, a reminder for Sunday of the month, we return to John chapter 1 in our communion credentials series as is the entire book of the Gospel of John, G-O-J as I do in my notes. Gospel of John is the title I've given for the entire gospel that I've come up with is communion credentials for two reasons. It's a series I'm teaching only on communion Sundays and secondly where gospels are, especially the Gospel of John is an analysis of the life of Jesus Christ and his credentials as the eternal God-man. We're looking at one of the aspects of Jesus Christ right off the bat in John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 5. So let's read that. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. As your note sheet shows you, this is the first part, Roman numeral one, on the deity of Christ right up front, that Jesus Christ is God in verses one to five. As you can see above that, this is the first section of the larger series number one, the wonder of Christ's life introduced in verses one to 18. We're having the introduction of Christ in this first part of chapter one. We've already seen in your note sheet everything above the dotted line in the outline is review. Everything below it is new. And we've seen already under the deity of Christ in verses 1 and 2, letter A, the beginning, the word was God. And so what we have here is a defense right off the bat that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is God. You cannot be saved if you don't believe that. You, no one can be saved if you don't believe that. He is not just a good prophet, a great man, philosopher, as most unbelievers say. He is perfect man and eternal God. And that's what verses 1 and 2 point out to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So the Word refers to Jesus Christ. And the word God refers to the Father. The Word was with. So the Word, Jesus Christ, was with God the Father, and the Word was God. So it's three separate persons manifesting one deity. One God manifested in three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This gospel and this passage is focusing in on the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, as we saw, letter A under the deity of Christ as well. He was in the beginning with God. Beginning refers most likely to the beginning of creation. He was already there as we've already studied. Uh, the beginning does not refer to eternity. So he was, state of being, always in the beginning with God the Father. They didn't come. He did not come into being. God was not created, is not created. He is and always has been and always will be God, Jesus Christ. And he's called the eternal logos then. Logos is the pronunciation of the Greek word in verse 1, word. The word for word is logos. And so Jesus Christ is known as the eternal word or the eternal logos. Now, in your note sheet then, 
We last time started under letter B to discover the beginning. And three very important terms occur in this passage. And notice in verse 3, all things came into being. Being is a very important, came into being is a very important phrase. And then in verse 4, in him was life. Second very important phrase. And the life was the light. Third very important word. Not phrase, but word. So your letter B in your note sheet under the deity of Christ says the beginning. Being, life, light through the word. So his coming into being is verse 3. Mentioned three times being is mentioned, if you'll notice in verse 3. Then he, Christ, in verse 4, is talked about as the life. And also then transitions from life to light, the light of men in verse 4. And then the light's function is to shine in verse 5. Now, in your note sheet then, we have looked last time, we finished up above the dotted line under point number one, the beginning. We looked at all things came into being through him. Now, the Greek order is very important here, and that's why I put it in here. What it says in your English text is all things, number one, came into being, number two, through him, number three. We're looking at verse three, the beginning of verse three. Notice that all things, number one, came into being, number two, through him, number three. But the Greek, if you'll notice, all things comes first through him. So it reads like this. The English is one, two, three. All things came into being through him, one, two, three. But the Greek reads one, three, two. Did you get that? The third thing in your English, through him, comes second in the Greek. And in your note sheets, I've typed it out. The Greek, all things through him in the Greek is next. All things through him came into being. That's very important. We'll get to that under the dotted line in a moment. Notice above the dotted line, the last thing we saw last time was all things. The word is panta, all things. And you can write by way of final review this morning on the dotted line there. All things refers to everything. All the stuff of the universe. All the stuff of the universe. Everything in his universe that he created in Genesis chapter 1 that's recorded in six days. All things is referring to that. It's very generic, very simple. He's the one, Jesus, that brought all things into being. It was through him. So we finished off with understanding all things in your outline. That's point two above the dotted line. And now, today we go to the concept of through him. Through him. Very important. This is a defense of the deity of Jesus Christ, this series at this point right now. Our world loves to think, as I've said in the introduction already, that Jesus was a great man, a wonderful prophet, a moral man, a philosopher. The Bible doesn't teach us that he is just those things. It goes infinitely further that Jesus Christ is God, sinless and perfect. And this is one of the major defenses. He is the creator. As we're going to learn this morning, hopefully in the next 15, 20 minutes or so only, um, this attacks the very issue of evolution. And evolution, in fact, attacks this. If the world was not created, 
we lose a major defense for Jesus Christ being God. Notice it says all things came into being through him. If there is no creation, then all things did not come through him. To believe in evolution is to deny the Bible's truth that God created everything and Jesus Christ is God. You cannot believe in evolution and be a born-again Christian. This is a fundamental of the faith. It rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. It rejects the inerrancy of the word of God. And yet evangelicalism today has toyed dangerously with the concept of theistic evolution, and we will get to that. Now, a little, I'm, I'm driving you down into a deep outline here. Notice the letters as, and numbers as they go. Roman numeral one, then you've got capital letters, then you've got points, ones, numerical, then you've got letter A's. Now we're back to half parentheses, one, two, and three. I'm sorry. I don't know how else to do this. You'll have to just suffer through it and follow down. So what we're looking at then is through him, little letter A now underneath number three, half parentheses. And I typed it in for you. Through him shows that all that exists exists sourced out of or emerged, came out of the eternal logos, Jesus Christ. So emerged. I wrote that word in italics and read um, that is another way of defining the coming into being, coming into being. Emerged or came out of the eternal logos. He is the source. So underneath that, Christ is the source of creation. Christ is the source of creation. This phrase proves beyond a doubt that Jesus Christ, the eternal word, is God. Now again, to remind you, it, the word Jesus isn't mentioned in verses 1 and 2. Christ is not mentioned in verses 1 and 2. How do we know that it's referring to Jesus? Again, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh. So, we know that the word is God in verse 1. Right? The word was God. Was, by the way, is referring to the event of when he became incarnated, obviously. That's what's in past tense. So we know the word is God. Secondly, God became flesh. Which member of the Trinity became flesh? Christ. So that's how, without saying the word Jesus or Christ, we know that this is referring to Christ. Very simple phrase. There is no defense. There is no complication here in verse 3. The Bible doesn't need that. God does need, not need to defend himself. He just states truth. God, through uh, John the Apostle, JTA, simply states truth. No shame, no equivocation, no debate, no ten reasons why evolution is false and creation is true. The Bible states it categorically. He created everything. Now underneath this little letter A, this means that if he created everything, he himself is uncreated. He was never created. Only eternal God is uncreated. Notice the contrast between coming into being in verse 3 and the eternal position he had in verse 1 of is or was God. It does not see the word became God in verse 1. It says he was or is, state of being. But creation was not always. Creation is not. All things had to come into being. There was a starting point and a beginning point for this universe. 
And it occurred when God created the universe and Jesus Christ is God. All things came into being through him. So there's a definite contrast between the uncreated eternal God and the physical universe being created. Jesus was uncreated and always has existed, verse 1, even before creation. Yet in verse 3, already being forever in, in, in existence, he, in verse 3, then starts time and creation in Genesis 1. Only eternal God can do this. He created the universe, and also miraculously at that point, he created time. You can write that, all things, under that little letter A. He created time. So if he created the entire universe and creates time, and he controls all of it, the marvelous application is, does he control your life and mine? This is the infinite God that we serve, is that he controls everything. This is what we who are Christians who love the Lord hang our head on in faith, that our lives are under the control of the Lord. Now also, we need to be reminded that he controls believers and unbelievers, but he controls both groups in different ways. He controls believers and unbelievers alike. For unbelievers, through him, he controls their judgment and destiny of hell. And he controls them providentially. Providentially means, as we've already looked in past sermons, that God controls the affairs of men miraculously working through the events of this world. Without necessarily direct miraculous intervention, he controls history. God could never predict prophecy for the future, the Antichrist, the tribulation, unless he controlled the Antichrist, the tribulation, and unsaved humanity. He could never predict in the New Testament for us the last day's apostasy in the church. He could never predict for us the isolation of Israel, being back in the land and being hated by the world as it is today, signs of the end times, unless he controlled the affairs of unsaved men. So when we're talking about all things came into being through him, write it down. Through him means he controls them. Through him means he controls them. He controls unbelievers providentially, Mysteriously, miraculously, in the sense, providence is one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle, in regards to humanity, because he works through events that are normal, everyday events, and yet controls. And he controls unsaved man providentially, controls them in judgment, and controls them to hell. For believers, he still controls us providentially. But for believers, through him, when we come into being as humans and then we are saved, he controls us by directing our steps into his will. Unbelievers do not have a will of God. God does not have a specific will for them other than judgment and hell. But for us, it is quite dramatically different. He controls our steps. He controls our lives. He has a will for us which he directs. Psalm 37 shows us this contrast between God's control of the saved and the unsaved. Go over there for a moment. Psalm 37. The contrast between through him, things have come into being and he controls everything, saved and unsaved. And this is one of the great passages, Psalm 37, verses 16 to 26, that shows us the incredible control. What I'm saying here is Jesus was not creator, deist. When John 1.3 says that he brought everything into being, 
He did not create, then walk away, as deists say. So coming into being includes control, which deism rejects. Psalm 37, verse 16. The contrast is made right here topically at this point in the Hebrew. The righteous versus the wicked in verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the many. Wicked. So you can see the contrast between righteous and wicked. In this context, wicked refers to the lost. Don't use that word and then go through the whole Bible and say all times the word wicked are used that it refers to the lost. That's not true. In fact, Paul in Romans 7 uses some very strong, pejorative, very almost insulting words concerning himself in his battle with evil. So there are times when the words wicked and evil refer to unbelievers, but there are other times when we have a right as believers to use the word wicked and evil for ourselves. But in this context, the, con the contrast is righteous or saved versus wicked and lost. So it's better to have little and be righteous than to have a lot of money and things and be lost and wicked. I think that's a lesson our country knows nothing about, does it? Verse 17. Now here's providence. Here's God's control of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken. So their arms are broken. They're powerful arms of humanity. Their lives, their plans will be broken. But notice the more intimate control for the believer, verse 17. But the Lord sustains. Samak is the Hebrew. Sustains. That word is used in verse 24. Look at the end of verse 24. For the Lord is the one who, what? Holds. That's the same word, samak. Sustains in verse 17. Holds his hand. So for us, we are sustained by him holding us. Guiding us, protecting us. This is the God that he is for us as his children. Much more loving and caring and sustaining and holding and controlling than the judgment at the beginning of verse 17. The contrast continues. Verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. So that's massive protection and control. All our days are known, numbered, and controlled for the blameless, one of the words for believers. And we are guaranteed an eternal inheritance. This is one of the rare allusions in the Psalms to eternal life in heaven. Many times David and the psalmists speak only of Sheol and going to the grave. But this, as well as Psalms like Psalm 16 and some others, show us that the psalmist and Old Testament saints believed in eternal life after death. Their inheritance will be forever. He goes back to the control, judgment, and hell of the wicked, verse 19. They will not be ashamed in the time of the evil. So this tells us that believers are surrounded by evil times. Famine. In the days of famine, they will have abundance. Of course, this refers to the fact that famine in the Old Testament in Israel was, a, was one of the tools of judgment for God upon uh, Israel. And yet, the godly he provided for. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. See, there's control. They will. There's no doubt. God controls the wicked. All unsaved, wicked people on this planet are controlled unto perishing, which is referring to hell. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Of course, that's into eternal perdition and judgment. Verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. Always from Old to New Testament, God shows the evidence of one being unsaved. 
by their behavior. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Giving doesn't save. It's an evidence of salvation. For those blessed by him, verse 22, will inherit the land. Here it is. Control. Equal control. He's controlling them. We have come into being to be saved, and he controls us. We inherit the land. A word for the abundance of future blessing for Israel. And, of course, in the New Testament, the land would refer to heaven for us. But those cursed by him will be cut off. So here we can see that even when we face evil and are surrounded by evil in verse 19, even when the believer falls in verse 24, it's not chaotic falling. Let's go back to John chapter 1. So when we talk about coming into being, we're talking about a couple things. And we'll speak more to this verb next time, as you can see next, under letter B. We'll just finish off with letter, little letter B. And then next time, next month, number four comes into being. We'll deal with that in January. But what we can see is two things this coming into being means then. And to recap your little letter A there, through him. It means he is absolute creator of the entire universe. And the one who creates number two is the one who controls it and directs it. God is no fool to make something like this universe and then walk away from it. He is actively intervening and controlling this universe. Don't let the crime and the bad stuff of this world and the seeming chaos make you think there is no God or that he's walked away. That is not true. Letter B. Notice that in the Greek, this is John chapter 1, verse 3, as I just alluded to earlier, please notice that through him comes second before coming into being. So it's all things through him come into being. What's the point of this under letter B? This is very important. The Spirit of God through John is saying this. The emphasis of the beginning of verse 3 is him. All things through him. The emphatic nature of it is him and him alone. There is no starting the spark of evolution, as theistic evolutionists say. He did not begin the process of evolution with the first primordial amoeba in the primordial pool and an evolution kicked in. It's all things absolutely emphatic through him and him alone. This is the idea. Nothing in, the, in this universe exists except through him. Him, he alone. So he is absolute creator and absolute controller. There can be nothing without Christ. And by application, if he so controlled the universe and creating it and guiding and directing it even today, there are no issues or problems or things in your life or mine that are outside of Christ's control. We do not have to worry. I read an article from Reuters news service recently in which the journalist was blasting a renowned scientist who said there is no evidence of global warming. The author said that such scientists who deny the absolute truth of global warming and the absolute authority of true science are idiots. The author said they are idiots. And they are idiots for denying reality. The journalist actually said that they were idiots. He goes on and says that 
global warming has been proven by sound science beyond any doubt. He went on to say that this global warming denying scientist that he's referring to was an idiot just like the 70% of Americans who believe there is a God. When he said, quote, absolute science has irrefutably proven the truth of evolution for over 150 years. There is no middle ground on this, folks. Evangelicalism is trying to find compromise, middle ground to unify evolution with creation. There is no middle ground on this. Either all creation came through Christ in verse 3, or the Bible is wrong in an error, and there is no God, and evolution is correct. No middle ground. God is in control. If you look at Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6, this is not an aloof God that walked away after he made the universe. This is not a God who is there but does not care. I've heard evangelicals use that phrase. God is there but doesn't care. That's not true. And God's control comes into the issue of worry and anxiety for all of us. So practical. Matthew 6 verse 25. He says, for this reason I say to you, verse 25, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap, yet gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Do you notice the control there? Feeding animals. Taking care of birds. Are you not worth much more than they We've talked about that issue of self-worth. The word means a separating worth. Are you not different? It's a poor translation to say worth much more. The idea of dia ferro means fundamentally different, superior to. Are you not different, superior to them? He's not speaking to our worth. I saw a theologian once say that this proves self-worth and self-love because Christ said this. That's a fundamental misreading of the Bible on that. We are much more superior in creation to animals. And yet he takes care of the lower. If he takes care of the lower, won't he take care of the superior? And who are you are being worried can add a single hour to your life in verse 27. You can't. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God, now here's the application, but if God, and he does, if and yes he does, since... But since God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more you, you of little faith? John chapter 1 verse 3 is telling us plainly, everything that you see in your entire life has come through Christ. And not only has it come through him, but the Bible testifies that he controls it. The issue for you and I this morning, then, as we go into communion, is simply this. Does he control you under judgment and unto hell because he's Lord over all? Or does he control you as your chi- his child? Precious direction, steps guided, and as a saved child of God, protected in his will no matter what comes our way as we study again tonight the suffering that we face as believers It's all under the Lord's direction. 
The question every human on this planet should be asking, which none of them do, is which side of God's lordship and control are we on? All things through him. He is absolute Lord and master. Have you submitted under his lordship and asked him to take over your life by faith alone, repenting of your sins? If so, this table of communion is for you. If you have not asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, or you're living in sin and have not repented, or you're not sure if you're saved, this communion table is not for you. What we must do before communion especially is make sure of our conversion and make sure we're walking with him. Let's take our hymnal and turn to 274. As I pray before the hymn, as I pray before the hymn, if you have not received the elements, whether member, tender, or visitor, if you're truly saved, born again, you can come up and get a bread and a cup. This does not save you. This is not the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is simply a commemoration. It's bread and grape juice. You can buy at a food store, just as Jesus used at the Last Supper. And if you're saved and you recognize that there's no saving merit and no grace imparted through this, this is a remembrance. This table is for you. And we'll sing 274. As I pray, though, before we sing the hymn, if you haven't come up and gotten the elements and desire to partake of communion today, to do it while I pray right now. So I'm going to pray, and then the hymn, Randy, and then we will go into communion. Father, we're so thankful for your precious word that tells us so clearly, categorically, that you, Jesus, are not only our Savior, but your Lord God, you're majestic. You are true and holy. And you didn't just create us and walk away. You did not walk away. You came and brought everything, emerged it, brought it into being ex nihilo, as the Latin says, out of nothing you created something. And even though the world has fallen because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we thank you, Lord, that still, amazingly, miraculously, you are as much in control right at this moment of everyone and everything in this universe as you were the day that you created it. This gives us great rest in you, trust in you. May we, before we partake of communion, make sure that we're saved, that we're on the right side of your lordship, not the side of judging lordship to hell, but the side of saving lordship and care as a shepherd guides the sheep. May we be sure that we are truly in your loving care and salvation through the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. We thank you so much for this gift of grace and mercy you've provided where you died in our place for the sins and judgment that we deserved. You took our punishment by dying on the cross. And you rose again from the dead, showing us the victory and power of divine hope and resurrection. And then you ascended into heaven, Jesus, as eternal God, sitting at a throne next to the Father, co-reigning, and waiting to that great day of the Lord when you return to earth to bring judgment on mankind and restore all things. As we pray right now, help us, dear Lord. And then as we sing in a moment, help us, dear Father, to rejoice in the mercy and grace of your salvation. Help us, dear Lord, to rejoice that you hold us and can never let us go. The power of creation is the power of sustaining us. And help us, dear Lord, to grow in faith 
through these marvelous truths concerning Jesus Christ, I ask in your name. Amen.